Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster, and come on now, you know what I do. I'm here with Michael Moynihan. Matt Welch, we are all assembled for what I I know now to be the final wide release dispatch of this podcast for the year 2022. And um, Mm. that's good. It's exciting. We made it another year. It's fine. It's great. Yeah, you could have said uh, Michael Boyan on Vice News because I have one more of these left. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, next time we record this it'll be michael moynihan living under the tappan zee bridge uh amazing banjo player i'm gonna try to find some skills i gotta find some skills i thought you and and peter meyer uh are gonna start a new uh we're gonna get we're gonna get together little uh (laughs) hobo's row uh (laughs) yeah meyer moynihan um a law firm of two people who santos like have no law degrees we're gonna advise you uh, we're, we're now currently advising Southwest Airlines. <laughs> um, I, can, I can picture it right now. I text you guys almost every time I ride the subway. Actually, I don't, believe it or not. It just seems like it. Because, don't take your phone out in the subway in New York. Uh, it's well, not just the New York Post yeah. because people people shoot you for it. Uh, not anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, they everyone has the speech. Uh, Hello, everyone today. Greetings. I'm sorry to bother you. And then just comes a bunch of lies. Um, yeah. uh, so I, I'm picturing, <laughs> I was shot in the Korean war. I'm like, dude, you're like 30. I want to see Peter Meyer there. Uh, hi everyone. <laughs> yeah. Talk I was a you. congressman <laughs> and I voted to impeach. Said, Is he drunk? Is a little bit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you could oh, just, God. you know, even if you just sort of, you know, give a prayer, that's enough or just like five cents. <laughs> Supermarket chain. Peter Meyer learned the lesson that if you have principles and you stick by them in Washington D.C., you don't last. Get thrown out of office. It's it's a good way to be fired, by the way. We expect George Santos to be leading the Republican (laughs) (laughs) within the next four to five years. By the way, this is so fucking crazy, and it shows you, you. Do you remember when Seth Lipsky started the New York Sun? And the idea of the New York Sun was that nobody cares about local journalism anymore. Like the New York Times is a national newspaper. All they care about is national politics. And the people who covered local news in New York didn't know, um, you know, Kew Gardens from Schenectady. It was just it was always the joke because he was a local guy. Um, Nothing proves that more than the fact that George Santos walked to victory despite the fact on this is a recently found one. I think yesterday on Twitter, (laughs) he talks Two separate tweets, one about how his mother died on 9 11. Yeah. You know, every day 9 11 fills him with uh, the the wound is fresh. The wound is fresh. Um, And then the next one was like, you know, when my mother died in 2018, it's like, really? Nobody? Anyone? (laughs) Nobody's paying attention to this shit? It's like, well, I don't live in fucking Westbury, so I don't pay attention to, you know, I guess it's the third district. He also um, claimed to be uh, from a biracial household. That was a, that's an exciting one. Yeah. Is he, is he still standing by that? Because it's a little bit all over the place, whether or not he's acknowledging for Sean King. this or not true, <laughs> and whether he's standing by certain assertions. 
The problem we is have he... pictures of fucking Sean King's dad, and it turns out it's fucking Larry Bird. And he, keeps going. <laughs> he doesn't even care. Like, yeah, whatever. I'm gonna raise some money. Uh, I think the problem with it is that his first interview, which I think was the New York Post, uh, America's greatest newspaper, there's not enough time to go through all of the bullshit. Right. So they they like asked about 68 percent of the bullshit and everyone on uh, reaction. Well, you didn't ask him about this and that and the other. It's just, well, yeah. there's there's entire new fields of it every day. But, you know, this when the, the first man, when the man the, dictum floods his own with shit, when the uh, mm-hmm. first uh, reports came out uh, showing that he was telling absolutely incredibly fantastical, easily disprovable lies all the time. And of course, it comes out after the election. There was uh, some commentary by. A lot of journalists have like, see, this is what happens when you people don't support local news. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, no, dis- that's not true. discourse about that. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think there's a, there's an element to that. Local news is absolutely withered on the vine. Um, but one of the reasons and it's always, um, I think, discounted is that the appetite for local news um, mm-hmm. has uh, the consumer demand for it is just not high. Um, it's not yeah, high. That's right. People that's right. people tend to not know who their Congress people are, certainly not their city councilman or borough president or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, congressman might be the uh, the the first level that they might have some uh, knowledge of. I recently on a uh, episode of this podcast, I misnamed my own congressman because they redrew the district and I was confusing my city councilwoman uh, for my uh, for my congressman. But that's how people look at politics. And when you look at politics that way, you could have a lot of journalism about it like it, it and it still wouldn't really amount to much because people just, you know, by the time they get into the ballot box, it's like, OK, there's a D, there's an R there in New York. There's no longer any L. There's maybe some working uh, families or something on the ballot. And they just there's not demand. Everyone wants to nationalize absolutely everything. And so they think about the president um, and they don't think about uh, some shitty Congress person. So well, I blame this is everyone. the thing that that's right. I mean, there's a couple things here is that, you know, I said that, you know, it's a, brought up Seth Lipsky for a reason. But it's not because people are underinvesting in local news. And there's a couple of reasons for that, by the way. And you, your point is correct. It's that you always see this with, you know, Al Jazeera America. It's like, you know, we're going to cover the elections in Djibouti because nobody else does. And it's like, yeah, no one's going to watch that because no one cares. <laughs> if there was a demand for it, people would do it. This is a simple market mechanism. Sorry, guys. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that, you know, they do co- cover small congressional races. They covered AOCs like fucking crazy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's a small district in Queens that nobody cares about the legislation. It's, it's no, no, no. But she gets on TV all the time because there's, you know, a eight minute oration about somebody who is mean to her on Twitter or a congressman in Florida who is an asshole to her or something. And this stuff gets a lot of play. We, I've never heard anyone talk about what she's doing for her district, except for when she's preventing Amazon from coming in and providing jobs for people in her district. Beyond that, who knows, right? I mean, this is the weirdest thing. And like, you know, the reason Santos isn't being covered, and I'm sure, by the way, that that New York Times thing long after the fact was probably a tip off. Somebody probably tipped somebody and said, by the way, this guy's a little dodgy and takes two seconds to look into that stuff. And then you have a Republican congressman who is um, weirdly holding out. They, holding out's never a good idea. It's not going to last. He's not going to be a congressman. Full stop. That's going to I mean, he can go for a, a day if he wants, but he's going to be shunned by all his colleagues. And by the way, the, there is one lesson from this whole thing. It's a very positive lesson about America. And the positive lesson about America is that in 2022, a Republican thinks the best way of winning 
is pretending that he's gay. <laughs> pretending Larry that Craig Jewish. must be like, what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> literally, I had, I was in there hiding in the bathroom and denying it. I should have I should have told them, and then I would have gotten another term. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, so that's a, that's the positive message. Also, pretending that he works for the big banks. This is yeah, all very interesting. You mentioned Jewish. The, the New York Sun um, has a piece. It was an editorial that they ran recently saying, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus um, and suggested that the falsehoods that he told yeah. are of modest consequence. And I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I want to be sure that I'm being fair and that the reality is that the people in his district opted for a Republican for legitimate and deep reasons that matter a great deal. I think they also acknowledge, and this is an editorial of theirs, I think they also acknowledge that Republicans could decide not to seat him for lying. But I was happy to see the cross-examination he got from Tulsi Gabbard, who was sitting in for Tucker Carlson the other night, um, and asked him if he had no shame, if he thought it was okay to lie to his constituents in this way. And his first response was that Joe Biden also lies, and people continue to support mm -hmm. him, which is <laughs> just astonishing. He should have done more re research on Tulsi Gabbard, by the way, because that would be more yeah. fruitful um, to, yeah. to look at. <laughs> exactly. We get Joe Biden lies, but he's also at this point, he takes advantage of the fact, the thing that we were not allowed to talk about during the campaign. Like, you know, if you talked about the fact that he was old and might not be in complete control of his faculties, you were, you were considered a, a nasty person. But now it's also his excuse, because if you were, to lie, if you were 28 years old, 35 years old and you said i hit a 368 foot home run at the congressional <laughs> baseball game in 1973 or four people would be like this guy is santos mock too he's this is fucking crazy but now when he says it it's just like hey he doesn't remember where he is it's fine I, so there's a the slight difference with the biden stuff is that he can skate a little bit by being um Somebody who's uh, both the president of the and the leader of the free world and suffering from dementia. So one thing that, uh, that we don't want that I think that uh, people ought to ask him. Sorry, that was my Apple Watch yelling at me about George Santos. <laughs> so really? Um, yeah, it was like seat him in Congress. Like, really? People who have elderly parents know this game. It's a game called How Old Are You? Um, yeah. And to see like what kind of panic or what kind of ballpark figure you get. Um, I think Biden's probably at this point, he might have gotten into within one or two or three years banned if he was asked about that. Um, like, mm -hmm. yeah, you ask my dad, he, he'll he'll guess. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> he yeah. Sometimes he gets it right. Sometimes yeah. he doesn't. Uh, a friend of mine uh, asked her mom recently and uh, um, and uh, mom came back with uh, 35. <laughs> was, uh, how, old you, how old you? Yeah. Right? yeah. She said 35. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, which is wow. not, not was not accurate. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely part of the Biden package. And, the, you know, the, we've mentioned this before, um, that at some point his fabulisms were disqualifying. It prevented him. He was an up and coming star in the 80s, seen as a very viable presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. And because he was making stuff up about his uh, bi biography and inventing 
uh, family members and, and labor union pasts and going to this college and whatever, and just like plagiarizing Neil Kinnock, right? The Labor Party guy. Yeah, Neil Kinnock. Um, yeah. His biography, um, it was an embarrassment, and he had to suspend and, and get rid of his uh, his campaign. Pat Cadell, who worked for him, I think, had to resign in shame. Um, and uh, it was yeah, all. Then he became a Fox News liberal. <laughs> yeah, Pat he became Cadell. a Fox News liberal. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, and someone I partied with a lot in college. Um, but, uh, uh, this was a, a deal breaker then, and it's not anymore. And the, and one of the problems with the, having a two party system in the way that we do is that the New York Sun is right. He didn't win, um, for a completely frivolous reason. He didn't win because he was him. He won because he yeah. was a Republican and people in the suburbs in New York are really uh, pissed off about, crime and other types of, uh, you know, uh, city dysfunction right now. And so you vote for a Republican in that case. Um, be great to vote for an actual candidate or someone who might do something. Mm -hmm. But there's also the, you know, a tacit acknowledgement. Hopefully it's an increasing acknowledgement that it doesn't really matter who your congressperson is anymore because they're not going yeah, to they're not going to yeah, bill. That's right. Not, yeah. not I mean, it's, it feels better to me that I think Hakeem Jeffries is no longer my congressman, and uh, I guess I guess Lee Zeldin is my congressman now. But uh, yeah, I've for never a, a I haven't really minute. thought thought uh, much about it. Um, that, only except for when he was running for governor. Although that puts you in, in pretty good company, since it's still the case that most Americans can't name their congressperson, um, and only a small yeah. majority, a slight majority, yeah. could actually tell you what party their congressperson is actually a member of, and that's been mm -hmm. the case for a very long time. Very long time. Oh, something that can't be corrected. You know what I, yeah. I didn't know? I didn't know that Corn Pop was actually a real person. This was Corn Pop's a real person. Joe yeah. Biden's yeah. story of this potential fight that he could have had at a pool where he was a lifeguard and there was something going on with the hair on his legs. I don't quite know. But at any yeah, rate, yeah. it involved a chain and, <laughs> and, a, and a scary gang leader named Corn Pop. And Corn Pop is a real dude. Exactly. Corn Pop. A real person. So he didn't lie about that. Didn't lie about that. I mean, he didn't lie Can't about smoke. the fact that it was a real person. You know, you know, Paul Molitor is a real person. But, you know, if I made up a story about him, it doesn't make it true. <laughs> they, they did become friends. There's apparently details of the story that have not been cooperated. Corn Pop. He had a friend. They, they, they became friends? Corn Pop. Yeah. It was apparently true that they became friends. Did he become his driver or something? <laughs> I guess he took the train. He didn't have a driver on the train. Driving to the train. Well, Ms. Daisy. Corn Pop. Corn picking me up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, how about that looting in Buffalo? I just wanted to bring that up quickly because we're, while we're in New York, yes. I sent Camille last night some videos of the looting in Bu Buffalo, which the tragedy in Buffalo is really Horrifying. Um, hard to even comprehend. It's, it's unbelievable that uh, this snowstorm has caused so much uh, damage and so much death. Mm -hmm. uh, too. I don't know what the death count is now, but it's, it's double digits. I know yeah. that for sure. But as uh, usually happens, there's, um, you know, looting going on now. And I just wanted to point out something that um, this isn't fair. I have to say that I haven't read this, so I'm not going to comment on it. But uh, I didn't read it, not because I didn't have time. Uh, by the way, there's 28 dead in Buffalo right God, now. Yikes. Uh, at least 28 dead. That's astonishing. Um, and I just wanted to point out this Washington Post headline, which this person who wrote this was desperate to 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 file something like this. Um, Buffalo blizzard fuels <laughs> racial and class devised in polarized city. Um, from somebody called Brianna Sachs, who mm -hmm. used to work at the Daily Beast. A great way to uh, 
cut your teeth in journalism. I worked there too, by the way. Uh, so yeah, there, there's been, there's been this looting. I don't. The only racial component I saw to this is in the videos that I sent to Camille. There were store owners, the new Koreans, the Koreans of Buffalo, are uh, apparently Arabs, uh, and I know this because of the video mm-hmm. is there's people defending their stores shooting at potential looters. Yeah, um, it doesn't appear to be they're shooting in the air. By the way, they seem to be shooting at potential looters and in the videos too that i saw the, the people uh filming yeah are talking about the arabs yes this motherfucking story the arabs is running around this bitch with choppers and shit y'all better be careful <laughs> they watch out y'all they brought the arabs they're back scre- they're screaming arabs got the guns it's like <laughs> amazing in this video like what arabs and so maybe that's that the seems, racism that, that seems a little about. racist Call it seems a Arab. little bit racist. Um, Arab. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know how widespread the looting is, but that there is any looting, and it's 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 pretty of, widespread. It seems actually. to be pretty yeah. measurable. Like the videos I've seen, I've seen videos of like law enforcement officers driving by gaggles of people going into electronic stores, and I know they're electronic stores because they're coming out carrying televisions down the street, and <laughs> in some cases you're not escaping in your vehicle. You are on foot yeah. walking yeah. with some, a Sherpa behind you or in front of you to yeah. help guide the snow. snow everywhere. Banks of snow. And I mean, these people aren't I moving mean, fast. Points for degree of difficulty. 85-inch screen through the fucking snow. If you're going to loot, I mean, earn it. You know, you have to, you know, actually show up and go through the snow and, and, um, and you know, pull your weight. I always, always bring this up. Uh, the onions are dumb century headline, which has the best use of the headline comma of all time, which they would never do now. And it's the picture of the looting in L.A. It's supposed it's supposed to be a headline, a headline from some from 1992. And the headline is uh, rioters demand justice, comma, tape decks. <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny and probably something that wouldn't happen these yeah. days so anyway but uh to the people of buffalo i hope hope all is all is uh getting better and the piece that you mentioned Moynihan, she she did say that yes um more than 30 people have died um by by her accounting um yeah which is i mean yeah it's pretty yeah this heavy. morning on that same website says 28 but i guess yeah uh, yeah yeah, but I guess it's the idea is that um, it seems like there's a lot of snow in poor neighborhoods. And <laughs> the city is highly segregated and they don't have access to like snow blowers in the way that, you know, upper middle class people would be. So um, that would be the racial divide in the blizzard. Um, which just seems to me uh, a divide between rich and poor or slightly wealthier and slightly poorer. I mean, I how- be, the same thing would be true in Ohio in like sort of what one would call sort of white trash areas. <laughs> how many articles call, I would call. over the last like five to eight years could or should be rewritten from people uh, simply by factoring um, uh, poverty numbers or comparative wealth numbers where they are uh, insisting on making a, it a race story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, it, it can get you to a, to an interesting place to the extent to which you're going to be focusing on race is the correlation between race and poverty um, itself is, is kind of of interest. But, and this can, this also it's typically an origin story though. It right? also goes through um, historical story um, through uh, COVID. I mean, and, and that cuts across a lot of uh, COVID death stats, um, uh, correlate and also vaccine stats correlate with 
poverty, white and black and other colors and whatever uh, as well. And and no one will, it, it's rarely factored in. People want to go immediately to, is there a disproportionate number, particularly of black, but also Latino usually is is the, the kind of number two um, looked at. And if it's popping up higher than usual, then we can make a, a, a claim of uh, possible, you know, equity violations and, and uh, disproportionate racial impact. And it just, there isn't, I feel like one of the things that they're going to be focusing on this so much in journalism school, like you can do some statistics studies as well um, and look at poverty and like enrich at least that story. And it's almost never enriched in that sense. Mm -hmm. But you, you very rarely have these stories these days where, um, you know, naked racial bias is at play in the way that you had them so frequently in the 1960s and 70s, for instance. I mean, it happened after that, of course. Mm -hmm. But you saw them very frequently in the 1960s and 70s, where, you know, you could interview somebody in Boston and at the beginning of busing. And Louise Day Hicks, who is a Democrat and, you know, an anti-busing uh, uh, person, shall we say, she's a bit of a nut, uh, she would be like, I don't want the black people in the neighborhood. It brings up the property values. It'd be something like that. <laughs> very naked, very straight up. They would say this on the news, et cetera. They would say this on camera. And politicians would say the same thing. Um, whereas now, you, it's, it's mostly in numbers, right? Because you have that obvious thing that there is a, a racial disparity in wealth. And because of that, so many things follow suit, right? I mean, less money you have obviously things are going to be more difficult in X, Y, and Z situation. It doesn't matter what it is. And that now is what we do. And, and now, of course, the response would be, well, racism has gone underground. That's been, we, we've heard this for 25 years now, is that people don't want to say, well, why don't they want to say it publicly? Why is there a stigma attached? Why is your life over if you're in Central Park and you call the police and uh, describe somebody as, as an African-American man? And then you have to flee the city, the country, your life, your job, et cetera. These things are poison, obviously, so people don't do them. And it's not just a small coterie of people that are enforcing these rules. Everyone I know uh, thinks this. Everybody I know. I mean, people grimace at, you know, um, you know, the wrong. I mean, even describing something. I made a joke a long time ago that my mother would say things like would whisper things that were factual just out of safety. He'd be like, you know, uh, he's, uh, he's Mexican-American. He's Mexican-American. <laughs> it's a country. You don't have to whisper. He's like, it's a country. It's a country where people live. It's a very big country. Like, yeah, I know, but, you know, but it's, it's like just out of safety. I love, we, I love that one. Like, you know that, you, that things had changed a lot when, <laughs> when people were whispering the names of countries. But that thing, though, is it, it is you inevitably get these stories of Buffalo Blizzard fuels racial blah, blah, blah. Because there is a poverty divide in Buffalo that is very similar to other cities in America. And you will see this, by the way, in other countries, too, where there are other sort of religious minorities, ethnic minorities, people who are you know, lower down. And this is why Tom, Tom Sowell's books that are global in, in scope are actually the best things that he wrote, the things mm -hmm. that I actually really appreciate. Um, you know, stuff like the conquest and cultures and like the stuff about racial disparities all around the world. And mm -hmm. you see how these things operate Although in I, I the think America of, you know, is, is, is limited to the to the United States, but it's still Yeah, I think America is limited to the US. But you know, 
it's also pretty good. And th- these things kind of um, stand up too, but it's kind of like the etymology of the, you know, terminology, like all the kind of language of this stuff and where mm-hmm. it comes from, et cetera. But these things are always, always arguments about history. They're always arguments about America's past because I always have this conversation like, well, that's not why this disparity is happening. And the follow up is and I have this conversation with one person in particular all the time. It's like, well, why is this? And I'm like, I know slavery. We can go back pretty far <laughs> and get yeah, But let's we can't keep having this conversation because it's not a solution to anything. Mm-hmm. It's acknowledging past racism creates um, current current problems and disparities. But what good does that do us now when you always say, always see this through a racial lens and say, we know that this is how we got here, uh, but it's more of a poverty issue than anything else. Yeah. Even even the we know slavery thing seems to me like too much of a concession. It's almost certainly a part of the equation, but it's probably sure. not the ultimate reason why this is true, at least to the extent there are positive, quote unquote, or at least outcomes where blacks are overrepresented in ways that are generally good for them. We would have to attribute those things to slavery as well. And it just seems it seems like no one would be willing to do that. So it's sort of preposterous yeah. that we're we insist on doing that. There's this kind of abstraction from a presumption about the role of race in absolutely everything to this assertion of fact about the role of race that we see a whole bunch as well, which it's not even a matter of appealing to the data or talking about the disparities. But and we were talking about this the other day via text, the story of Tory Lanes and Megan the Stallion. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the T H E. misspelled V. Too, if you're unfamiliar, too, too many E's. That is that. not a misspelling. That is deliberate. <laughs> that's because she ratchet. Um, Tory Lanes, a fellow rapist um, whose name is also alternately spelled L A N E Z. Yeah. If you're interested, mm-hmm. um, were both young, uh, fairly successful rapists who were involved in a rather scary domestic violence situation. Tori has been convicted now of firing a handgun at uh, Megan Thee Stallion's feet because they had some sort of argument. And it ends in her saying, your music is some bullshit, and him screaming, dance, bitch, while firing his firearm. He said that? This is what she says. Wow. Um, of course, he That's insists a, he insists that he didn't do this Westerns. and that she was actually <laughs> shot by one of her jealous friends who found out that Tori and this jealous friend were actually having a relationship. At any rate, Tori's convicted of this crime, Megan Thee Stallion being a very prominent person in the hip hop scene, a woman who published, uh, you remember the opinion piece that she published in the, the New York Times um, back in 2020 about the need to defend black women and how she was going to stand up for them. But the point I was making, I gave you a bunch of context, is there was a story about the the case and a line from the story. um, This is a New York Times story that had three journalists in the byline. um, But the line in the story is... (laughs) A quote that is attributable to one of the prosecutors. Woodward, Bernstein, <laughs> women, <laughs> women, especially black women, are afraid to report crimes like assault and sexual violence because they are too often not believed. Now, granted, it is entirely possible that this is true, but it strikes me as somewhat interesting that claims like this appear in stories all the time, and there isn't even an appetite, an interest, a curiosity about having them substantiated in any way, shape, or form. And quite frankly, I don't even know how you would go about substantiating that. I don't know. Megan the Stallion said without evidence. (laughs) Let's take a poll of people who didn't report the crime. 
That sounds like yeah. a pretty. It's always a hard one to quantify. Yeah. Yeah. But but, and, but and black women in particular are they it, uniquely likely to do this? Are they more likely to be disbelieved? And by whom? Is that a consequence can, of misogyny? Can I read and you, racism? Can I? Misogynoir, I think we discovered <laughs> yesterday what this was called. This is actually true. Somebody's come up with it. Yeah. Um, somebody who is um, an academic who doesn't appear particularly uh, bright. But uh, this is from the same piece, uh, which I think is, is uh, quite interesting. In her, testimony, in her testimony, the rapper, and that is Megan V. Stallion, yeah. said she did not tell police officers that she had been shot that night, July, claiming instead that she had <laughs> stepped on glass because tensions between black people and law, enforcement's were, law enforcement were high after the murder of George Floyd. Quote, I didn't want to see anybody die, she said. I didn't want to die. Who the fuck shot you? The police? <laughs> no, no, no. The rapper. The other guy shot yeah. you. She also is worried about her career. Quote, by the way, this has been the best thing ever happened to her career. Uh, I didn't want to talk to the officers because I didn't want to be a snitch. The rapper added in court. (laughs) (laughs) I'm adding the in court, by the way. Snitching is frowned upon in the hip hop community, which she identified as a boys club. So we have race, we have police, we have snitches, and uh, we have misogyny. All in about four sentences. It's like, but the bottom line is... That motherfucker from Canada, he shot you in the foot. That was what happened. And All you, the other stuff is snitched. fantasy. And you snitched. <laughs> and you eventually not, told them. It's actually not, I mean, maybe Camille can correct me if I'm wrong. Snitching is when you talk about like a thing that someone else did to someone else, generally yes. speaking. It's not That's like. Generally speaking, right. Yeah. This person shot me. And saying yeah. that is snitching on that person. No, the person shot you. Yeah. It seems yeah. a category of difference. I think that one of the most likely reasons. And this is not backed by social science, I readily admit, um, that people, um, probably male and female, don't report domestic violence uh, issues is because it's literally a he said, she said situation. Or it could be he, he, if it's a gay Mm -hmm. or male, whatever. But, like, it's two people, no witnesses. That's hard. Mm -hmm. And you know it's hard. And also you know that in order to report it, you're going to have to, you know, put a court in the middle of your relationship. And Mm -hmm. that sucks. That That's at, correct. That just that sucks. So you can you can file on that under well you know women and especially black women aren't believed. Maybe that's a way of saying there are no witnesses, so you'll have to take my word for it. It's going to be hard to prove, and it's going to be a big fucking hassle, um, which makes sense. Um, but like just to assert blithely, you know, that this is the reason why people don't report um, because of, uh, of like some kind of inherent, but there, but uh, there were witnesses and you've got feet, yeah, that was feet full yeah. of shell fragments. Um, yeah, so. yeah, you have, you have Kardashians <laughs> that saw this, I think. but the, the thing about it is that's absolutely right, Matt. And it's, um, of course there are probably people who don't report this for various reasons, but one, I mean, I can say this as somebody who's been punched in the face by a woman, uh, <laughs> Not more enough. than once. Nah, <laughs> did you, did I mean, you have it coming? I I literally did. Um, uh, so <laughs> Michael Moynihan you know, defends not, domestic violence on this episode. Yeah, I'm like okay, Ike Turner. <laughs> and, um, I'm like Tina without talent. But uh, <laughs> but but yeah. So this. But like the other thing is that you know that if someone comes, number one, if you have any like in the community, people are going to find out, right? You don't want that. It's going to be in like in the small towns in the police blotter. People talk about it. The police talk about it. Uh, the other thing is that you also understand the possibility that he said, uh, he said, she said situation is that you both get arrested and you're inviting your own arrest in a lot of ways. Um, and 
it's it's something that people just don't want to deal with and it's not always because they don't trust the system is that they don't want to get involved with the system because not because of what Megan the Stallion says because if the cops come they're just going to gun her down <laughs> Dur- during during the like interrogation they'll start to gun people down like summary yeah, execution yeah, yeah. yeah we got a call up at the Kardashians house uh, can you can you bring out the big guns we're going to have to shoot some people completely unbelievable unfortunately it's never chris jenner but uh continue so yeah completely unbelievable um but what else what else is on our radar today ukraine is in the news again today i'm seeing a lot of reporting about a barrage of artillery something like 120 rockets Mm -hmm. launched by the russians which makes this one of the more substantial assaults on ukraine in recent months Michael and yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, talked, talked this, uh, so yeah. we're recording this on Thursday. Michael and I uh, went in for a subscribers-only podcast on Wednesday night, and we talked about it at the tail end of it. This is just shout-out, especially to those who uh, were uh, given gift subscriptions to the uh, fifth column. Thank you for uh, uh, joining us and um, the subscribers-only. We read a lot of emails and uh, have a lot of fun and don't necessarily take that as the carte blanche invitation to go during your 30-day gift trial to call Moynihan a Nazi in the comments. That's Wait, did prob- somebody do that? <laughs> yeah, so, Wait, so, where? So guy, yeah, in the comments of last night's thing, some guy named Jordan goes in there. It's like, you guys are just basically right-wing Nazi alcoholics. And, and huh. people are like, yeah, uh, you know, what's a... Uh, Nazi? It, I was called a Nazi by call, a guy named Jordan? Yeah, you called oh, Nazi God. by a guy named Jordan. It, you think it's Jordan Knight from New Kids on the Block? <laughs> <laughs> can we, um, can we track people? who gave the gift subscription? I suspect he wasn't can. that interesting. <laughs> oh, you know who it probably was, was, by the way. Go ahead. Well, there was there was somebody who wrote in and said that he gave gifts uh, to three of his. It was uh, it wasn't enemies. him. That was, they they've been uh, adjudicating that in the comments. Uh, but all, <laughs> all of which is to say that I mentioned that George Will this week had a piece that looked back at 2022, the year, and said and posited, and it's not a, that big of a stretch, but that the. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's resistance to it um, and uh, ability to fight back is by far the biggest story of the year in a lot of different ways. And I think that is that is probably correct. Um, and, uh, and even in a way that uh, I had begun, begun to get a little bit depressed about, I had wanted and advocated at the beginning of the war that this should be a, an opportunity to kind of rethink geopolitical security arrangements, particularly in Europe, and to try to settle the end of the Cold War, which never really uh, happened. And George Will pointed out something that I didn't realize that had happened, but that Japan, of all countries, is now spending a lot more on defense. They are, they're, they're usually supposed to only spend money on, on pure defense weapons technology, and they've been buying uh, you know, missile systems that can go a thousand miles. Um, so that's not pure defense when you're talking about Japan. And as he points out, uh, you know, uh, Taiwan is closer to the um, uh, an island from Japan than it is to mainland China. Um, and all of that to me is to the interesting and good to the extent of which that there's going to be countries that look upon, um, you know, just this kind of um, uh, amazingly aggressive attempt at annexation and even eradication of a sovereign country and say, oh, shit, um, I need to make sure that you know, we're taking care of our own country more as all of the 
countries or most of the countries on Russia's western flanks have been doing basically since 2014. And now we have Finland and Sweden joining NATO and other people lining up. Um, That's an interesting shift. And the other aspect of this that I would like to see more of, and it actually even ties in with Buffalo, um, is that I would hope that there is a big rethink that at least is beginning. And you've seen a little bit of it in Germany, a little bit of it in California, of all places, of the way that people get energy. The, the, the year mm. of fantastical, or the era, the decade of fantastical thinking about energy creation, where you could just wave a magic wand and it's all renewable. Um uh, it kind of starts to look ridiculous when people are dying underneath the snow and get and home heating oil prices are through the roof because you, you know, uh, either have a stupid act on the books like the Jones Act that prevents uh, uh, stuff from being shipped. Or in the case of places like California, you've shut down nuclear, you've shut down everything and, and mandated that X percentage of all energy creation has to be uh, come from renewable renewable sources. Um, it's only the beginnings of people thinking about that in Western Europe and trying to diversify from getting all of their uh, uh, petrochemicals from Russia. Um, they've even screwed it up so bad in some places in Western Europe that they're now importing like wood to burn <laughs> just because of the complicated incentives of things. And it's that's just like as as uh, horrifyingly. Uh, polluting in its own way, and it ends to clear-cut forests and stuff like that. But I would love to see one of the unintended results of this horrible, horrible war uh, and act on the part of Russia that people begin to take more responsibility for their own defense, and they stop thinking in magical terms about how your fucking home is powered and how your industry is powered. And we're still like taking baby steps, but be great if it, if that goes into a different direction so that places like California say, oh, shit, let's do nuclear power after all. Uh, yeah, we talked about this a, a bit last night, so I won't repeat myself. Just go and um, subscribe. And uh, if you want uh, uh, a freebie for, for a week, uh, send me an email. And I'll give you one. For a week, that's it. You're not getting more than that because then you'll be like Jordan, uh, who, by the way, I just looked at this. <laughs> he didn't call me a Nazi, by the way. Um, he called me other names, but he's a, <laughs> he's a paying subscriber. Huh? So I'll allow it. Oh, thank you. And he actually pays. Yeah, yeah, he actually well, pays. Not a freebie. He pays, and uh, you pay for the right to say that uh, it, it ended by it said "Go fuck yourself," boy, dude, which I thought was a really <laughs> strong ending. Although pretty, I, pretty smart, smart and strong. Can, ending. can I invite and, and really implore yeah. Jordan and yeah. anyone else in the audience who feels a similar way? <laughs> you might be joking, especially among paid for. subscribers. Well, either way, I mean, it's entirely possible to subscribe to pay and to dislike many of, sure. if not all, of the takes on the podcast. There are people like that. I mean, um, also he just dislikes me, which is also totally yeah, understandable. Well, I, I understand. And seems to I mean, like you. Join the the club. Well, what I want to invite is, one, be specific um, to the extent you're going to be critical. Try to be specific anyways. And perhaps articulate what your perspective is, because I'm interested in knowing what it is you support. I always find it odd that when conversations about the perspectives offered on Ukraine on this podcast come up in contexts where people are likely to be critical, that I can never really figure out exactly where the disagreement lies, because it seems to me that being generally critical of Russian aggression and consistently, I'll say, concerned or expressing concern about the possibility of there being some wider conflict and avoiding that, those are regular themes in all of our discussions. And while there may be some disagreements 
about the degree to which the U.S. should be involved at this point, the amount of material support that ought to be offered. I don't think there's been any overly rosy predictions about the likelihood that Ukraine will win in the end um, or that any of this would go swimmingly if the United if they had sort of sufficient U.S. support. I think it's been like rather thoughtful, well-informed, if again, consistently anti-aggression perspectives offered on the podcast. And I think a lot of the more hysterical sentiments that I've heard expressed in some places, or at least anti-interventionist sentiments that I've heard expressed in certain instances, um, like just doesn't really seem to land well here. I just don't get it. No. So I'm, I'm interested well, in having a, you articulate your perspective. You, you, yeah, you can't, you can't be anti-interventionist in this case, unless you consider giving, I mean, or, or that doesn't apply here is what I mean. Cause the intervention is from Russia. Right. Well, they're anti-U.S. The intervention. Into the sovereignty. Yeah. Well, the U.S. intervention is financial mm-hmm. um, and you can oppose that. And that's totally fine. I actually, you know, might even agree with you on some, some elements of that. And, right. you know, making sure that there's some sort of oversight of this. And I know a lot of this money is going to, to kind of backfill American stocks that have been been given to Ukraine, and it's essentially, you know, a lot of uh, contracts for Raytheon and and defense contractors uh, in the U.S. That is where a lot of that money goes. But um, I do not, and I and again, I don't want to go over this again because I encourage you to subscribe to listen to our fantastic podcast that we did on a whim last night and discuss this at the end of it at some length, and that is the mystery of some of the opposition to Zelensky in particular. I, I find that rather odd. Um, somebody who is put in the most unenviable position uh, that one can imagine. And, and if, you're, if you're saying that we shouldn't send money to a country that is historically corrupt, that is also a very odd thing to say in a situation that we actually are giving people money. Not, is, we're not saying, here, go build a bridge. Um, go line your... There's been no accusations, as far as I can tell, no credible ones, that people in Ukraine are lining their pockets with money that is coming from, you know, Estonia or Latvia or the United States. I mean, if some that of that's... Happen, some of that's going to happen. I mean, it's... it's cool. Of course it's going to happen. Yeah, it happened war. during World War II. Yeah, I mean, it's like... You're yeah, in a war and the country has a history of corruption and there's... You can't and there there isn't going to be as close scrutiny of this as possible. So it, it, it sure. is absolutely going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen and war profiteering yeah. does happen but i think it's also rather different than say the iraq war where you have a number of contractors and people in dc you know the kellogg brown and roots of the world kbr which was referred to in iraq as kick back and relax because they took money and basically did fuck all according to people i knew that were there um I can't, i'm not going to say that as a fact but it's rather different here that if you aren't pulling your weight in ukraine uh during this invasion you will essentially get tarred and feathered um, yeah. on a local level. This is not, these are not people that are going to turn a blind eye to somebody stealing enormous amounts of money that should be going to the defense of the country and defense of you know, communities and money that should be going to, to soldiers and to units that are under-equipped. Under, um, and I just, I, the Zelensky thing itself, which is to watch people go through uh, Zelensky's background and try to find the thing and like, oh, well, he had this company that in 2012 and it was like his partners and it was like an offshore this, that and the other, uh, which is very unconvincing for a lot of reasons. But the, the motivation to go find that is always odd to me because you're basically saying, well, I'm on this side. I'm going to go try to find out why I am. 
and to prove that this person is a bad person. I mean, look at some of the memes, particularly from the losers and, and nobodies and deadbeats and libertarian, various libertarian parties in the U.S. And, then, and it's, they're, it's a fantastic moment for the Libertarian Party because there's nothing that illuminates the question that's often asked of me. Why does Libertarian Party go nowhere in electoral politics when so many places in Europe have, you know, five, six, seven different parties that uh, perform very well? There's a lot of reasons for it, but... Um, one of them is that it's um, staffed by psychos and weirdos and losers. I mean, this is what happens when you go, I sound very Trumpian about it, go to a Libertarian Party convention, and if the person giving a speech on sta stage is wearing a pair of pants, you're there on a lucky day. I mean, they're usually some pantless freak up there saying, you know, we should be able to have sex with 11-year-olds. It's like, I don't know if in I want to be part of this. In fairness, well, Mr. No, Matt, this is going to be kicked to you guys in a second to defend it. But <laughs> all you have to do is look at, the, look at the accounts of state Libertarian parties, a couple of them in particular, which appear, appear to be run by by people who know nothing about the world. <laughs> I'm going to go large and say they don't seem to know anything about it. I mean, they're obsessed with saying that, you know, Zelensky is some sort of neo-Nazi, which I find um, pretty interesting because, you know, imagine them applying this to, to other things, whether applying it to sort of Black Lives Matter protests, which I'm sure they don't, they're not fans of. I've seen that on their, on their, um, Twitter feed, because what you can say is that the Azov Battalion and there's people with it. I've met, I've met people who are fascists uh, in, in Ukraine, which I find uh, kind of terrifying. You guys are going to have to take this um, and defend the Libertarian Party because I have to. This is the heat guy. So hold on. Go to the heat guy. <laughs> um, I will defend. I'll be smirched Moynihan. By the way, he's a Nazi. I don't know if this has been widely <laughs> shared. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Libertarian Party, for all of its pantslessness, for all of the um, I agree. Uh, super clownish, uh, hot meme takes and drawing Hitler mustaches on Zelensky from the state parties, um, particularly over the last year. Now that there's been a change in management in the National Party and and uh, of a lot of the state parties by a thing called the Mises Caucus a takeover. Um, it's kind of boring internal politics. You don't need to know about. But it's mm -hmm. worth pointing out that the uh, Libertarian Party uh, finished in third place in presidential race, three consecutive elections. And that's the first time a third party has done that since the 19th century. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but can I interrupt and just keep the free flowing nature of this stupid podcast, yeah. uh, you know, exactly where it should be is I haven't had heat in two days. Yeah. And uh, these motherfuckers, <laughs> as I explained on the one, if you had known, if you paid that uh, this is a problem, the problem for this is the, the people that I've called are white. And uh, they just show, they don't show up. The whites, whites not, the whites don't show up. If, the if they were like Ecuadorian, as I said last night, if they were Ecuadorian, I would have got to go out and be like, dude, can you stop building an addition on my house? I just want you to fix the heat. Hardworking people. We will not. Condone the whites are not. De Demography uh, of so, various racial groups on this podcast, even white. Can I go back to demagoguing the Libertarian Party? No, continue, uh, no, just uh, <laughs> just that for all of all of their everything's um, over the, over the past few years. You know, uh, Libertarian Party has been getting two thirds of the at least in the presidential vote of the um, non major party presidential share. They've 
beat all other third parties in every single one of the 50 states plus the District of Columbia in the last two parties. They couldn't ever once... Thank you, Donald Trump, by the way. They couldn't ever once, uh, you know, uh, outpoll Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader ran for president 75 times, and each time mm-hmm. he did better than the Libertarian Party. Um, but in the last three presidential elections, and also in local elections, it's yes, it is totally a tallest dwarf situation, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it has been up until this moment... Qualify. But yes, by far the most successful run in that party's history uh, and the most successful third party in a while. And that's what makes the internal mechanisms and the takeover and all that kind of stuff also sort of interesting because they took over a comparatively successful host um, as opposed to where the Libertarian Party was. Or going in that direction. 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, Yeah, like lurching in that direction. I mean, I think the thing to do here. By the way, and, I, and I'm mostly motivated by the memification of – I mean, I don't pay attention to the party anyway because I think it's always been filled with people who I'm not terribly interested in. But now it's just full of, like, you know, edgelord meme idiots. Um, but what one would hope and, – and again, this is not the type of libertarianism these people are interested in. They are themselves a sort of weird brand of populist. But it would be great, like, you know, if you had a party like you do in Sweden and Germany, which are very, very small parties, and both, and both um, Sweden, uh, which is essentially gone into nothing. There was a party called Folkpartiet now, which is called the Liberals. And in, in Germany, where you have, uh, you know, the Free Democratic Party, F- FDP, they, they get nothing. They get small. But they're, they're like free market parties, right? And that's necessary in places where, you know, they're socialist welfare states. You need a, a small party to push against that stuff. And in the, in, when we have two parties now that love tariffs and love writing checks mm-hmm. and don't care about budget deficits, it would be great if the party would stop fucking doing memes of a guy whose country has been invaded who is Jewish as a Nazi and say, hey, guys, maybe this inflation is uh, partially to do with the fact that we're spending too much. Maybe somebody should fucking say that because Republicans aren't saying it for sure. And libertarians have a great opportunity here. And what do they do? They fly the fucking plane into the mountain. Of course. Of course. Because they're fucking morons. It's like these, I mean, if you are that obsessed with libertarian politics that you're going to devote yourself to being part of the party, in a party that essentially does nothing and you're not going to be elected, you are not going to be the type of person that is going to be think, thinking of things in a practical way. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I hope I am. But it doesn't seem that I am, considering what they've been doing recently, which I find utterly disgraceful. I find it to be a complete fucking disgrace. I just want to point out that Moynihan is spitting all this uh, fire while wearing literally a Zelensky uh, neck, <laughs> olive green yeah. sweatshirt. There's always like, one. It's just... Yeah. Do you know why I'm wearing this? Do you think it's as an homage to Zelensky? It's like, no, because I'm fat and uh, this used to fit me yeah. and I'm cold. And so it's like, it, it feels... If, yeah, it's like, it's like, it's a, like a sausage yeah. casing right now. And now I feel warm and I sat down and I'm like, oh, I look like the Nazi president. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Sorry, I'm I, in a bad mood today. I have very, I'm heat in two days. very little to add to the to the discourse about the the LP and its various changes. I do think it's interesting though. Joe Jorgensen was the candidate in 2020, along with Spike Cohen, uh, who's the VP at, for the in that race. It's a great um, name, and they underperformed the mark set during the 2016 cycle. And there might be any number of reasons why that's the case, but it's worth acknowledging the degree to which prior party leadership um, took 
it upon themselves to try and embrace a lot of the social justice messaging that was popular at the time in a rather undifferentiated way um, and kind of nakedly made an effort to try to appeal to the Black Lives Matter crowd with vehemently kind of anti-racist um, sloganeering. And that didn't work out too well either. And I suspect it has something yeah. to do with the backlash that inspired some of the change that helped sweep the Mises caucus into power. Um, and I do think it's, it's, it's true that having an LP that was healthy, that could make it obvious that it might be expensive for you, conservatives, or perhaps even left of center politician to run a race where you are vehemently against markets, that there is a coalition of voters and it's meaningful where so many races are decided by very small margins, you want to appeal to yeah. those people. You could force them in your direction by actually running the party in a sensible way um, and being something. Forced to run off in Georgia, by the way. We should we should yeah. acknowledge that not for the not for the first time. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's 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 a really important role to play in national yes. politics, and the Libertarian Party has a unique ballot access situation. But I don't know that the word we they are being very good stewards. I'm not formerly a member of the party. One, I'm friends one with many people who are. This. Like Justin it's not going to be final. I have to, I have, I have well, to you, Well, one final thing for me on this is that, you know, I talk a lot about this and I've talked about it in the last couple of episodes of the kind of abrogation of responsibility when it comes to a party that cares about spending and cares about the size of... Um, of government and in that sense, you know, you know, printing presses whirring and whizzing all the time in creating inflation. Um, I don't think the people that we know and the people that we know in the universe of politics have stopped caring about the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, they've kind of subsumed it for other issues where I think that we're really losing ground is on technology and the number of people that we know, and I particularly I mean tech companies that have um, made a common carrier argument about places like Twitter yeah. because they see them as obviously they're being, they're controlled by the other side. We don't have a fair shot at this and the government needs to intervene to level this playing field. Um, because if we don't play by their rules, we're going to lose their game. Um, this is really a disturbing trend uh, because if you apply that to other things where mm -hmm. you, kind of abandon your principles mm -hmm. for short-term victories, you, you end up with long-term losses uh, because that becomes a standard, right? I mean, it becomes a standard if we are going to say that the government should intervene and step in if uh, Jack Dorsey and or his minions in particular, this, you know, Roth guy, I don't remember his name. Um, what's his first Yoel. name? Yoel. Yoel Roth. Yoel, yeah. Your, <laughs> Jarrell, uh, was it Superman's dad? Yeah. Wasn't that? Was that um, if he is making these decisions yes, about Ella. Jay Bhattacharya not being able to speak and blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, the truth will out in the end. And I will say that, and I hope this doesn't transition too much. Uh, we talked about this on our text chain today about Sweden. And I went back and looked and talking about Sweden and COVID performance. And I went back and looked, and I remember myself, I was sort of bullish on this idea of uh, Andres Tegnell, the guy that was their kind of basically their public health guru. And I backed away from it too and said, I think it's actually failing. You can find an episode somewhere where I'm saying, I think this is failing. But you go back and you need the kind of Jay Bhattacharyas of the world who are against lockdowns and say, this is probably not the best idea, but not 
deniers that COVID is is a, a dangerous uh, disease, a dangerous virus is killing uh, lots of people. That's it's pretty obvious, right? He's just saying that this is probably not the best approach. Go back and look at the Sweden stuff now and then look at the data today and the way that people are talking about it now. Even Washington Monthly, I sent you guys this piece and it was like, it eh, looks like Sweden's, you know, excess mortality was a lot lower than a lot of other countries, far lower than the U.S. Uh, and other places in Europe, too. And I think there was one chart that had them as the lowest. Uh, since if that's the case, 2020, since the beginning, yeah. Since 2020, since the beginning, yeah. And if, you know, that ultimately can't be um, suppressed. That kind of information, unless you're North Korea, can't really be suppressed. So in the end, it, 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 it will come out. But in the meantime, that stuff is being prevented from circulation by Twitter. But I saw Jay Bhattacharya interviewed a million times. I read about it. I read his stuff in the Wall Street Journal. Yes, it was bad that Twitter was doing this. I am not uh, pleased in seeing that that stuff is happening. But that means that the people who were once opposed or worried about government overreach into the private sector should really think you know, hard about saying we need to have some sort of regulatory regime that prevents a micro-blogging, do you remember you used to call it that? A yeah. micro-blogging platform mm -hmm. from, um, you know, monitoring who's on its platform and preventing people from, from you know, passing on certain ideas. I mean, all you it's have to do is... stupid, is, but come on now. Think about, um, you know, the concept of, whether you agree with it or not, of the deep state. The, some of the people who are the maddest about um, the absolute uh, Twitter su suppression uh, on one side of the debate. I mean, Twitter yeah. suppressed uh, Jay Bhattacharya. They suppressed Martin Kudloff from Harvard for saying true things um, uh, and for or for signing, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration, which uh, uh, suggested that it would be better to have a mitigation strategy that pointed at vulnerable populations instead of trying to suppress everyone, which I think that probably history will, Seems logical. Will, will, will treat them correctly. <laughs> but they were punished by Twitter for that. So those who... Uh, criticize that tend to be overlap pretty strongly with those who worry about a deep state and insecurity, FBI, CIA, and whatever, or just in the bureaucracies of government. So you're going to look for a regulatory solution to that speech problem? Who do you mm. think runs it's the amazing, regulations? If, if you think there's the a state's deep involved, state... the FBI is involved. Let's get the state involved. What, <laughs> Sorry, what are you talking well, about? The right people are in like... charge now. The right people are in charge. Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that, that lasts forever. <laughs> That is such and, – and um, sadly, some libertarian legal theorists, some of whom I have a great respect for, have been like playing footsie with stuff. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe there needs to be a common carrier type solution. Uh, this is awful. I'm going to interject very quickly about libertarian party things. I disagree with Camille. It's worth mentioning. Um, I don't Same. think that Joe Jor Jorgensen underperformed. Uh, she was an absolute nobody in national politics. Did I say um, under well, I, I, it underperformed under relative to the previous the, to the previous the previous, rate. Yeah. The previous I, rate I, was and, what, I, like and I will say even though she got one third six she got one point two I think one point three okay. and Gary Johnson got three point two yeah. but I think the proper way to look at third party results is as a block of third party and independent candidates there are spike years uh, there are ups and downs in years joe mm -hmm. jorgensen got 70 percent of the third party and independent vote gary johnson uh in uh 2016 got like 67 percent um i she did much better uh vis-a-vis -vis, uh pre-election polling she got a higher uh share of the pre-election polling 
um, because uh, usually you can just lop off half or two thirds of whatever, mm-hmm. or at least a third of whatever the uh, last uh, polls were. Um, I think I think relative to where she was and what her name recognition was. Um, that she, if anything, overperformed. Um, I'm surprised that she did so well. I don't think that, um, I think that Camille got mad at the woke stuff. I think that Dave Smith got mad at the woke stuff. I think a lot of people inside the Libertarian Party got mad at the woke stuff. I don't think anyone in the world noticed the woke stuff because they don't pay attention to that. The people who vote for the Libertarian Party are not the people who belong to the Libertarian Party. And it's a uh-huh. distinction that people always forget. There's I'm, a, I'm with the, you on that. There are yeah. five figures of numbers of people who donate to the Libertarian Party or have any like involvement with the party. They just vote for Libertarian because it more reflects their interests than that. And I don't think they pay attention to the message, the Twitter messaging of a candidate from Clemson that they've never heard of. Well, look, I, I think if the message here is no one pays any attention to what Libertarians say, they just know what Libertarians are, maybe. But during a year of kind of seismic ideological baggage shifting and uncertainty with respect to what parties stand for, I think it's relevant when the party wholeheartedly embraces a a kind of left of center approach to trying to garner influence amongst the populace. It sends, I think, rather confusing signals. And I'll say this, maybe you're right about these waves of support for independent candidates. But I think it's also true that you had two historically unpopular candidates for president of the United States and Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Um, people were looking for reasons to vote other ways, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And there was mm-hmm. almost certainly a massive missed opportunity in perhaps just in candidate selection. But I also think with respect to the kinds of things that you're talking about, you're in the midst of a pandemic We're flailing and failing in any number of ways. Parents were frustrated already by what was happening with respect to schools. Having candidates who can speak in a clear and competent way about things that actually matter and resonate with people, not getting captured by the ongoing culture war, because I'm not prescribing here. I want to see this like vehemently anti-Black Lives Matter sloganeering, and I think that would have done the trick. I'm saying they didn't stick to and adhere to principle and in so doing, I think perhaps might have bypassed an opportunity to do something really interesting during a period of time where things were just changing in ways that were surprising. But I don't want to be you know, I, can't know. Things, I don't know. But I, I sadly have written about this too much to uh, to uh, not uh, share uh, small insights. I don't. Do I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, disagreeing with your. A critique of it or saying that it's not critique where it absolutely is and you know you in particularly should should be mad online about it or anywhere else um and it's worthy of criticism they missed an opportunity of messaging more strongly they were really against uh, she was stronger against um uh a lot of the the mitigations and suppression strategy, strategies of covid sure. than um, most people give her credit for uh and mm-hmm. and um it, hit that very uh, heavily in interviews I did, but I mean, she's not That's true. Uh, necessarily a big persuasive. What I'm saying is that um, there is not any evidence that I can see. There isn't elephants uh, footprints in the snow uh, that this mattered in the, what her voting uh, received. And also Joe Biden is not a historically unpopular presidential figure. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton was. Um, sure. There's a difference okay. between 2016 and 2020. And I wrote about this in a ton of context in 2018, everywhere you went, I mean, Gary, 
Johnson got just 16 percent of the vote running for uh, governor or Senate. It was uh, in New Mexico in 2018. The, mm-hmm. the, and he was, you know, a strong candidate, well-known in, in New Mexico, beloved. Um, what happens when people feel like they're have to stop the bad guy is that every the major party bad guy is mm-hmm. that that is death for third parties and independents and mm-hmm. all of the trends beginning in 2018 um in that midterm election um has just been awful for it i mm-hmm. think if justin amash runs in 2020 he doesn't do that great either um it's just a, because people need to stop donald trump they don't give a shit about joe biden they need to stop donald trump i don't know if there's a lot of republicans like my god i need to stop joe biden um he might ride his bicycle again uh like i don't think that was the same kind of motivation hillary clinton does inspire that's how you that. stop joe biden get him on a bicycle then you have president kamala harris after you know put him on a peloton yeah uh, <laughs> By the way, um, quick thing, and this is an end of the year kind of thing, a recommendation for people. And I love giving certain recommendations because it, it encourages uh, good interaction with our, our listeners who, who have either consumed the same thing or uh, do it and give our own, their own perspective on it. Um, not people like Jordan. <laughs> I like who, Jordan. Uh, will probably be like, you know, fuck you, <laughs> you fucker. It's like, all right. Um, language. Uh, I, uh, in the past couple of days... Came back from Christmas and I've been pottering around before the new year. And I put on, um, mm. on just walking around with headphones on, put on Bob Woodward's last book, which is kind of not really a book. It's an audio book. It's called The Trump Tapes. All right. Mm. And it's the audio of all of his interviews with Trump. Oh, man. Nine and a half hours. Nine and a half hours. There is nothing more fascinating than listening to this. It, it, really? it explains everything about Donald Trump. Every single thing. If you pay attention and you have even like this, a slightly curious brain as to rather than just saying, you know, he's the most horrible person on the planet, which comes through in these tapes. It's how does this man operate? And um, I, I was sorry. I was just thinking of this because of, you know, Camille talking about these two awful candidates. It's really fascinating. The first thing you figure out is my one interaction, which I've mentioned in the show with Bob Woodward, was he was a complete asshole and uh, didn't like him. And it was in the green room at Fox and he was waiting to go on Bill O'Reilly and he shushed me Uh, because he was watching Bill O'Reilly's monologue. And I was talking to some somebody, a comedian. I can't remember his name for Red Eyes now. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, he's a prick. Yeah. yeah, Um, And uh he talks like he has a brain injury. Too. <laughs> it's kind of slow and it has that mid of, sort of Virginia. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's, oh, God. It's and he's, and, and he's both a good interview and a bad interviewer. Yeah. And one of the things you'll first notice, by the way, is you have to do this as an, an interviewer. And I'm sympathetic to this because if people see your raw interviews with people like this, they get all mad. This is what happened we saw recently with Maggie Haberman. Mm. People on uh, on Twitter going off on Maggie Haberman because there was something in the January 6th report, I think, where somebody said, oh, she's trustworthy. She likes us. She's one of us. She's sympathetic to us. Something like that, um, which means that she's a great journalist because she's clearly not. Um, she wrote a book that just came out called The Confidence Man. <laughs> about somebody, Trump. Yeah. About Trump. And that's mm-hmm. not on his side. But you do have to warm. These people have to warm to you. They have to understand that you're going to be harsh with them, but you're going to be fair. You're not going to be a person that goes on MSNBC and says, you know, I'm not sure if he's uh, a fascist or not. Um, but it's very, very good. 
And I will say that uh, he, he butters him up quite a bit, but he doesn't ask very good follow-up questions, which bothers me. Mm. But it is an amazing look into Trump's brain. Uh, the entire thing, the entire time, is, is Trump talking about the th- all the things that he's done and succeeded at. No one's ever done it like me. Mm-hmm. You see I, Kim Jong-un, there's a picture of him where he's smiling. He's, you see, find any other pictures, he's not smiling at any of them. He smiled for me. Everything is for me. Everything, I did this better than everyone else. It's all about winning. And you can listen to this all the way through and you realize this guy's going to say that he won the election. There's no doubt about it when you're listening to this. He can't possibly lose. Everything and every point is not about policy. It's always about how he did it better, how he's more popular, how more people love him, how Obama sucked and people didn't like him, but they like me. They love me when I do it. And, you know, and, and he asks him questions that are one which I found really uh, fascinating where he's talking, he's talking about, um, uh, you know, the office and uh, presidential power. And he's like, you know, some people say that, that there's more power has been accrued in the presidency and this is a bad thing. And uh, mm. do you think, you know, this, and he's putting something that anybody who knows about politics understands this conversation. You can talk about our old friend Gene Healy and the cult mm-hmm, of presidency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Trump understands the question. I was like, wait, so like I should have the power or what do you mean? Like I'm the one, I think that's good. And it's so baffling. So my, um, that's a, my heat guys are here. So I, I gotta be, I'll be back in one second. So there you go. Talk about amazing. Trump. Well, Matt, were you one, we talked a lot about the libertarian party and stuff too much. Well, it's, I don't, I don't think it's too much. I actually feel pretty yeah, comfortable yeah. with it, especially because again, the context here being third parties can play an important role in national politics. And despite the affiliation, with the libertarian party or libertarian movement broadly that this podcast has the unique newsworthy reason for having a conversation like this is because it is the most prominent and well-organized third party in the United States, which makes it noteworthy in a context like this. So I don't know if you had another point that you wanted to make, but just agree with Michael's withering criticism of the edge Lordia. Yes. uh, As, as do I. It has made, and this it happens at the national level as well. For those who are interested in it, and I know it's a minority, the uh, Mises Caucus, which is the internal caucus that just uh, that has uh, taken over the party. That's their their terminology. Um, a couple of days ago, posted online like a multi thousand word strategy uh, going forward that sort of talks about focusing on local elections more and a bunch of other stuff. If you're interested, mm-hmm. go check it out. It's new, um, and uh, and you know give give them a fairer shake than. Then perhaps they think that I'm giving to them, but I I uh, uh, I agree that it's uh, that kind of edge lord messaging is uh, is disreputable and um, and it's if you're trying uh, on purpose to be repellent, you you're going to repel people and mm-hmm. uh, and I am increasingly just as a consumer, uh, not that I matter, but uh, one of those people, I just don't want to, you know, I try, I'm unfollowing as many of those accounts as possible just because I'm tired of seeing that shit in my timeline. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. I prefer an appeal to the better angels. And I'll say, you know, I know Dave Smith. I, I like him. We talk and have talked about some of this stuff as well. And at some point I, I'd hope we'll have a conversation in public about some of it. Um, and I hope that they, successfully manage to disempower some of the more preposterous voices associated with them. But I think we can, we can stick a pin in that for another day. There's plenty of talk about that topic. I I think there's something interesting though, if Moynihan's going to hand us off a Trump baton, um, 
my uh, strong sense, and I'm curious about yours um, as someone who's um, maybe slightly less vociferous in hating Trump as I am, although you supported impeachment both times, let mm-hmm. the record show, yeah. like uh, even like more strongly than uh, I think either me or Moynihan did at the time, uh, which is kind of interesting. But yeah. um, I have plenty of contempt for Trump. I just I hate all politicians. And generally, think, it's Marley's razor that makes people a little confused about my perspective on Trump. I just Bob, Bob Marley's. He, he shot the sheriff, but not the deputy. Which means that he isn't necessarily culpable for all of the crimes. <laughs> there are some of the crimes. And I think the differences matter. Is that a term of art or did you just fucking drop it? Marley's razor? Yeah. No, I, I coined that. Early in this podcast's uh, history, oh, I wasn't listening. It's among it's among my better my better um, adages. It's pretty good, yeah. Um, but I I think one of the great opportunities, and I wrote a piece about it for Reason this week. Um, you know, Trump has been the the main character of our political drama in this country from 2015 when he escalated down into our lives mm-hmm. um, until. I don't know, last week, last month, something like that. Or maybe you want to say a a month from now, whenever January 6th committee does whatever it does. But I'm not sure a lot of people super duper care about that. Um, But the midterm election really kind of um, Trumpism was just such a gigantic loser in that. I mean, J.D. Vance is about all that on the national stage that you have to show for someone who's winning um, a lot of the people who are making the strongest kind of claims about the election mm-hmm. that uh, match up with his, him, that just wipeouts everywhere. I mean, just really lost badly. Um, you see him uh, polling um, basically at parity with Ron DeSantis when talking, uh, imagining who the next presidential candidate can be. Uh, just seems to have lost a lot of energy and focus. And I don't say that as like trying to pretend that he doesn't matter to a lot of Republicans and therefore one can, you know, not care anymore or anything like that. I, what I uh, am hoping um, aspirationally is that people just exhale a little bit. I think there's been such a frantic, high alert sense of politics. And this actually, you know, as mentioned before, this directly hurts third parties is among uh it's uh, other kind of uh, uh, aspects to it, um, but it also warps our lives. The, the extent to which the people have just been animated by their um, uh, both political hatreds or just sense of self-defense. They're mm-hmm. under um, siege from Constant the opposing attack. team yeah. at all times. It's made for an uglier uh, kind of America, and it hasn't, I don't think, helped. I think it's 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 actually detracted from some of the underlying causes of that sense of disquiet that people have to begin with. You know, there's uh, we, we've been trending down on life expectancy since before COVID, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, all these these deaths of despair were yeah. trending upwards before um, uh, a lot of this kind of you know, men have stopped working. Um, those trends predate COVID, um, uh, you know, the the teen girls kind of going uh, crazy in the air, ear of social media with their mental health. Again, that's pre-COVID. COVID exacerbated all of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But with Trump kind of receding, with COVID receding, with the kind of mania that we've been through receding, I hope that people take this as an opportunity to step away from the politics for a half a second and mm-hmm. like and realize that there are uh, there are things that can help those underlying 
senses of disquiet and problems that are totally at your fingertips, much more so than hitting the donate button to the fucking Lincoln Project or whatever else it is that uh, you're getting excited about or any politician for that matter. Just like go outside and <laughs> if you must go to a, a political meeting, you have it be your the local school board if you are you have skin in that game or whatever. Um, there's just a whole lot of better things that we can do with our time than obsessing all the time about politics. So my hoped for uh, big story of uh, not this year, but of next year is to have people doing that, like, like just like doing shit. We haven't had a time, I don't think, really in this country since the late 90s where um, politics wasn't front and center of every conversation. I think it's kind of began with Bush versus Gore and mm-hmm. the tightness of that election um, and then, you know, gigantic areas of fuck uppery with the government. Uh, with the Iraq war and the Great Recession, with COVID and this disillusionment with uh, elite uh, uh, people, class and poli- policy um, and then super close politics. It's just it hasn't made us better. Um, that kind of hepped up sense of of constantly being on alert for the saber tooth tiger coming into your village. Um, and I hope that we kind of do the nineties thing of, or, you know, the late seventies thing is how I put it in the, in a piece that I wrote, um, uh, where people just kind of like, all right, after all of this, um, you know, after all of the sixties and early seventies and just being frantic about things, let's just go jogging. <laughs> let's just go, <laughs> let's go pursue something else. Um, uh, rather than all of this, I don't have huge hope that it's going to happen, but I hope that people, um, uh, take it on themselves to sort of step back from the, the franticness. Uh, Moynihan, did you fix your heat? Uh, the guys here are fixing it. Yeah. Okay. The white guy. The, the, these white? Guys, no. No, these, these guys are awesome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're awesome. Uh, nice, this is the nicest guy in the world. I, I, some things trying to get off the top of the tank, and he's like, doesn't have a torch. And he's like, I come back later, I'll pick it up, do it, man, for, for nothing. It's no problem, man. I'll like, get a bottle of whiskey. He's like, that's good. That sounds good. Hey. So he's coming back. I'm going to get a bottle of whiskey to take this you know, thing off. The t- it's a, to- a separate job that I'm just having this guy help me out with. So you, but yeah, pay, yeah, pay him thank an alcohol. God. Yeah, bartering for services. Yeah if, yeah, if I saw a white walking up the driveway, I'd be like, can you just turn around? This is just a, you, we don't watch your, a lot. We don't watch your kind here. It's just not going to work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't want your kind. That's what you Chris, Chris Rufo has been warning us about this for a very long time. Um, what good employees <laughs> <laughs> oh, anti-white bias um yeah well that i have it on when it comes to fixing stuff <laughs> well so, maybe we're at the what end. did i miss what have we been talking about <laughs> no we we talked a little bit of trump and some other stuff trump in the rear view as a as yeah. a as a, a sense of potency in politics and making people all crazy like it kind of feels like maybe yeah. we finally might be unclenching a little rid bit. of rid of him i mean yeah, i'll tell you what for, that forward thing, I, I highly recommend it the the woodward thing mm-hmm. because it's impossible to listen to it without having a thought about what he is saying every 25 seconds because you're like oh that makes i see this is very trumpy and it's particularly when it comes to his relationship and there's a lot of this with uh, kim jong-un and how weird you know everyone hates him but he loves him Mm-hmm. And the guy gets him. And he's a, you know, it's really, really fascinating look into um, a very small mind, somebody who doesn't really understand the thing that he's involved in, but he thinks that you know what it reminds me of. Actually, a lot of people who started doing stuff in 
like crypto and like, you know, on Robin Hood and, you know, buying stocks at the beginning of the pandemic and everything was going up, up, up. And they said, you know, all these dummies that are in, you know, professionals at this don't know what they're doing. This is easy. And that's kind of what Trump feels like. He walked into it. and He's like, all these guys, all these, you know, foreign policy types, they don't know what they're doing. This is easy. I just I, I, I say the right things to the guy. I'm nice to him and he likes me. And we like each other and nobody else could get this done. What he's gotten done, um, it, you know, eludes me and Bob Woodward and probably him, too. But uh, although we but saw listen. Uh, when we were in Israel and I, I'm sorry that I'm blanking on the uh, on the journalist's name, but there's this left wing uh, Israeli guy who has a book out about the Abraham Accords, which is called it's all called like Trump's Accords or something. But he's having a, a hard yeah, time for Axios uh, has a hard yeah. time getting it published in England or North America because if people uh, don't want to hear that it's Trump's Trumpiness, which helped push this through. Like he's like, okay, yes. we'll do, we'll do this. Morocco wants this, fine. Like just inventing stuff on the wheeling and dealing. Like doing the thing um, helped make the Abraham Accords happen. Which from uh, I I had underrated the sense of importance that people uh, feel like that that had. It's hugely important, but it, it it what it required was that type of Trumpiness and that sort of wheeling and dealing. And that kind of sharp elbowed, quote unquote, negotiating, which I don't believe is really negotiating. It's just him coming in and making, making, you know, outsized demands, but he's American and get away with it in some sense. But it also required people on the ground who really understood the situation. You can't go in there and not know the situation. I actually, you know what? I'm going to do something that no one's ever done. I'm going to give Jared Kushner a tiny bit of credit here um, for somebody who, um, you know, made a lot of this happen. I think there are a lot of Israelis that give him credit. Uh, but you know, he's just a punching bag and I get it. And, um, I'm one of the people that likes to hit that punching bag, but I think in this sense that he was probably pretty useful. Um, and, and, you know, you need that kind of good cop, bad cop thing in a way, but listening to him talk about this stuff, because you see when it's an hour and a half interview, he drifts away from the character pretty quickly. You know, but he's still always the character. He does the voice. He can say, you know, nobody does it like me. Nobody like me. And he's like, get leaning. And it's still the same thing. But he'll, he's a little unguarded in certain moments, which I think is pretty illuminating. Um, and it's worth, worth listening to. But, uh, does, it, but uh, does it bolster my longstanding conspiracy theories about Bob Woodward? That he's a complete fucking idiot. Oh God! <laughs> what? You're trying to ruin. So that's your. Conspiracy I want to today. have him on the podcast. He's going to hear you say he that. He was an asshole to me. If, he, if he'll I, apologize, he can come on. Yeah. Now he's Don't probably not going hand. to. Uh, if you want to have Bob Woodward, it's going to be a four-hour podcast because he's like, "That's okay." So I was talking. We can speed it up. To we can speed Trump. it up. We can fix it in post. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> It'd be just like a normal dispatch. You want to be able to tell. Um, end of the year i was very excited when cormac mccarthy's final two books were being released the passenger and stella maris and i finally had the opportunity to read both of them and finish them and yeah. graham wood who writes valuable things at the atlantic on a regular basis had love a graham, piece yeah. over there the title of which was cormac mccarthy has never been better and i don't know if that is exactly right because blood meridian and sutri are like phenomenal books uh, but this does not disappoint in the slightest and i would encourage anyone who is generally a fan of great literature and certainly anyone who's a fan of cormac to go out and get this immediately and read it and it's 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 just it's a wonderful experience and also a little bit gutting because by the end you don't want them to end 
And you know that this is probably like the last piece of reading that you're going to get from Cormac since he's, he's getting up there in age. I'm not wishing death on him mm-hmm. or anything. I'm just saying that this is a thing that happens at some point you pass away and he takes a really long yeah. time to, to write these books. I think he's been working on this in some way, shape or form for like 30 odd years now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it really is just like an incredible piece of, of reading um, or writing um, which makes for an incredible reading experience. And I would, uh, yeah, add it up. I won't even quote from it. I won't try to embellish my recommendation at all. Um, I just will give it my highest recommendation. Is that your book of the year? Is that what oh, without a doubt? Yes, yeah. without a doubt, easily. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I would say this is this this is about twenty five years out of date, maybe more, because I think it came out in eighty six or something. But I'm currently reading a book uh, that I bought on Amazon a couple of years ago, and I hadn't gotten around to by a historian who died probably in the 80s named Francis Russell. And he wrote two books about Sacco and Vanzetti. And uh, the last one he wrote, Sacco and Vanzetti, The Case Resolved, uh, which he published in 86, I'm reading now. And it is really, really phenomenal. Hmm. Um, Not only because of just the information, but he's a fantastic writer. And you don't get that very much um, when you, you have a historian going through the kind of laborious task of evidence in this very, very famous trial, which when I was uh, young, growing in Massachusetts, the the robbery, I believe, was in Braintree, Massachusetts. The trial was in Dedham, Massachusetts. Um, it was it, it loomed large. And, and, you know, Felix Frankfurter wrote a book about it, about how they were railroaded. It was a case of anti-immigrant bias and discrimination against Italian-Americans. Um, and none of this is true. Uh, you could always sense that when you got a little bit into the trial. But it's really important, not just in the sense of, you know, my my book guilty of all these people that you thought were, were or were taught were innocent uh, that turned out not to be. And it gives you a sense that who controlled the narrative my entire youth. It was always, you know, Leonard Peltier and Mumia and Hurricane Carter and the Rosenbergs and Alger Hiss and Sacramento City. Everyone I mentioned is guilty. Everyone. Every single one of them. Ethel Rosenberg in Vanzetti, we don't know. Sacco was definitely guilty. But it's a really interesting uh, book about the kind of establishment of myth. And we're in another period uh, now, I think a pretty intense one, of the establishment of certain historical myths. And uh, because, you know, history just becomes battleground. Um, and, you know, the idea of fake news, an idea of misinformation and disinformation, that one has to control this so the people will be properly educated the people will know the truth and they won't stray into trump world like they did in 2016 we can correct those errors in the future if we just control the narrative uh that is very much what motivates a lot of the a lot of the writing and a lot of the journalism and a lot of the books about these other cases it definitely all of them had a a political end game you know, Simon Schama, I'm also revisiting his book about the French Revolution, Citizens, which is a phenomenal book, one of the best um, popular histories I've ever read. That's why I wanted to go back to it. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't he's not he's not trying to prove anything. He's writing about the French Revolution. It's a fantastic and, 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 and interesting subject. But Simon Schama didn't sit down at the typewriter in the 1970s or whenever he wrote this saying, you know, I want to make a statement about the Vietnam War. 
And so therefore we have to, none of that's involved. It's not freighted with that at all. And it just seems like a smooth kind of narrative. Whereas this other stuff, there was a moment where all of these things became the correction of the myth of, the, of America. The myth of America's founding, 1619 mm. project. The myth of, you know, uh, the, the, the good and just justice system, uh, <laughs> which is uh, weighted in favor of the rich and the white and the this, that, and the other. Um, and in that correction, the overcorrection means indulging in a lot of things that are either flat out lies or, or things that are not, not very true. Let's <laughs> put it that way. So that book is a very weird one. I came across it somewhere and bought it on a whim, and I'm just really, really enjoying it. Um, and I would recommend it to people. And, and I think it's on Amazon. There's a, there's, you know, a used copy for $4. So uh, I've I mentioned would, uh, this a few times uh, in the past and also linked to it on the weekend stuff, and we'll throw up a, a, a new one because people uh, forget. But uh, there's a, a, a listener-supported uh, Google Doc of – the books that we reference and talk about it's pretty close to being up to date um and i recommend going in there and clicking on it and just thank you to everyone who uh, maintains the thing it's kind of yeah, sure. uh, crazy the book that i've uh that's had the most impact on me this year i've mentioned it a couple of times so i won't belabor it but, but tony jute's uh post-war uh history of europe um after world war ii that came out about 10 uh years ago 10 15 years ago um just a pretty doorstopper-ish um but it is about the creation of the modern world that is now kind of sort of fraying or or at least is, is, has been tired. Um, and it's the context behind the creation of the international institutions. Um, it gives just a sense of the absolute devastation of World War II, which you think that you've got a pretty good handle on. And it's just much worse than, than you could um, imagine. And then also of how America was about the was really the only thing standing um, in many cases after that. So uh, it's a great book. Uh, but I would uh, also, because we haven't mentioned this in any context, like to plug the uh, interview that uh, the Wall Street Journal ran with Bob Dylan <laughs> about oh, 10 yeah. days oh. ago. Like the best, my favorite piece of reading, uh, and certainly in the last six months, uh, was this. And, and if you go look for it, um, actually don't read the Wall Street Journal version. Read the full uh, it was obviously an emailed interview with the uh, mm. author whose name I forget, um, but is a good rock uh, writer. And uh, Dylan, it's on the Bob Dylan's sites, the Bob Dylan Notes, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dylan's just a really, really good writer. I haven't read his uh, latest book. I hear it's not quite as good as the uh, Chronicles Volume 3 or whatever that, <laughs> that was. Volume 1. Volume. It, was, it was only Volume 1, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it was... Uh, which is a one of my favorite books of this uh, century, um, but this uh, Dylan just talking about how he listens to music and and referencing this and talking about the Oasis Brothers. <laughs> every yeah. quote is hilarious. Like every single quote is absolutely very, hilarious, and and also in its own way, like uh, very inspiring. I remember uh, Jack Schaefer, the great press critic, uh, once has pointed out that uh, yeah. You know, Bob Dylan's still undefeated in every interview, which is uh, uh, true going back yeah. to the 60s. But this was it. This wasn't a battle. This was like, you know, uh, uh, a writer throwing him questions and him just sort of exp expounding in his 
crazy, free associative, knows everything about American history kind of way. Uh, just delightful. It'll 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 make you smile and laugh and want to like cut and paste and send it to your friends. Yeah, so it's, go check it's, it out. it's very it's very funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's very funny. And that's the thing that people often uh, forget or misunderstand about Dylan is that he is uh, a, a hilarious, hilarious person. He is hilarious. His interviews are very, very funny. Um, you know, and there's a great clip that I saw after I read that. I think I sent it to you on um, YouTube from the. It might even be an outtake. I think it's actually from the No Direction Home. It's how it's. Uh, it's not the No Direction Home. It's from the. Um, uh, no, no, sorry, the from, Rolling from, Thunder. From that, the Rolling Thunder review, which uh, also done by Scorsese. But I'm I'm pretty sure that Scorsese didn't do those interviews either. No, because no, you hear the voice his, off camera, and it's, it's Jeff Rosen, I believe. Yeah, uh, and Rosen does all of them. And when he did the the No Direction Home documentary, you know, big event. I mean, I think it was on PBS at the time. Uh, Scorsese's doing it. He wouldn't sit down for an interview with Scorsese. He did it with Jeff Rosen. Scorsese sent Rosen questions, and there's an, a hilarious moment where he's talking about. Which I think is so fantastic and kind of poignant where he's like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, it wasn't about anything. The Rolling Thunder Review, you're doing this documentary, it wasn't about anything. It was just a tour. It was so long ago. It was so long ago, I don't even think I was even born. <laughs> how it ends, which I think is fucking hilarious. And, uh, but, but yeah, no, he's, he's uh, incredibly funny in all of these. And if you can, I was told a story once by a cameraman, great guy, one of my favorite people who worked on Larry Charles's uh, a series for Netflix about comedians. They went to Africa, and they were doing something on, on, on comedians in Africa. And Larry Charles, you'll recognize as a director from Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He kind of looks like Rick Rubin. He's got long hair and a beard. Um, and he did the uh, film with Dylan a long time ago, and they became friends. And he tells this story, which I'm not going to recount, but I, uh, his camera guy was telling, him, telling us about... Larry Charles telling the story about Dylan. And then Larry Charles was on, I believe, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, and he told the exact same story. And so the camera guy recounted it perfectly. But it is about Bob didn't find this. It was about Bob Dylan and Larry Charles <laughs> going to, to HBO to pitch a film. Uh, and I, I can't remember what the film was about. It was like it was about some slapstick comedian. And he was gonna he was gonna do this dramatic film. And Dylan goes to pitch us, and the only thing I'll say about it is they sit down in the board boardroom at the top of HBO, the the um HBO building on Bryant Park in New York City on, on 42nd Street. And there's a window that overlooks Bryant Park, and they all sit down. Dylan, who's wearing a long duster coat <laughs> and like a cowboy hat or something, walks over to the window, looks out the window with his back to everyone. And stays there, stays there looking out the window the entire meeting. Doing the same work. <laughs> and there's a hilarious whole windup, and I won't tell you, but it's I, I know that Larry Charles put it on Gilbert's podcast, and it is very, very funny and is very telling of of who Bob Dylan is. So, so it's very funny and worth worth your time. So, happy New Year! Happy New, happy year. New year! Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. Trojan Hall.